Isn't that beautiful? That was beautiful. Thank you, Sobrapina girls. Much appreciated. May Jesus be our vision always. Amen. And a happy Sabbath to you. Good to see you. And I uh, trust everyone is well and uh, everyone is doing okay and that you know in your hearts that God is good and that He has been good to you. We are. This morning I'm continuing a, a little series that I started before our Righteousness by Faith Symposium entitled Between Two Truths. And uh, for the next couple of weeks, at least next week Dr. DeRose will be here and then the week after we'll, uh, be at, uh, I'll be up at uh, the camp. Uh, but shortly thereafter we'll resume a few points and continue on by looking at certain twin truths uh, in the Bible and how they need to be kept in healthy tension to each other in order to uh, believe the right thing from the Word of God and have the right experience in our lives. The message this morning is entitled Between Two Truths Again. Um, you know as well as I do that life can sometimes be a balancing act between two competing ideals. Uh, one simple, often one simple act such as Casting a vote can involve us in a dilemma. Should we vote for the candidate who takes the right moral stand but clearly isn't capable for the position, or the candidate who is far more competent yet has some ideas you can't agree with? Sometimes the decisions can be even more personal. I read where a certain family had been approached by their precinct captain virtually begging for their vote. It looked like the party-backed candidate was going to lose, and if he lost, that meant the captain precinct would lose his job unless he could show that he delivered the vote in his precinct and could transfer or could transfer that loyalty to the other candidate. Should the family then vote for the candidate they prefer or help a man save his job? 
If they voted as they hoped, they might even get the trees they requested a year earlier. By the way, the notice that the trees would be planted arrived on election day. Dilemmas aren't limited to only these issues. Hard choices permeate our lives. You only have to open the newspaper or turn on the TV and hear competing ideas vying for our loyalty. Many of our laws and court cases are attempts to find balance between, for example, security and liberty. Both are human basic needs, but they exist in tension with each other. For instance, the freedom of the press and the interests of national security clash continually. Curfews and search warrants, drug testing and surveillance are all practices that promote security, but sometimes at the expense of liberty. Yet unbridled liberty would make us victims of others, thus destroying our security. The solution to these things is keeping these things in healthy tension to each other. And we'll talk about what that means in a moment. A similar tension, tension permeates our faith. Every biblical truth we know is basically balanced by another truth that seems to be moving in the opposite direction. For example, the gift of God's grace does not come without requirements. You have grace and you have responsibility. You also have freedom. Freedom is not given without responsibility. And in Christ, in Jesus, we deal with more than one reality at a time. Our faith is often lived out between two truths, neither of which can or should be given up. Now, Christians have often wrestled with this fact that our faith gives us two or more realities that must be held in tension to each other, that the issue has dominated theological thinking throughout church history. We affirm both the humanity and the divinity of Jesus Christ. We also affirm the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. That humans are sinners and yet made in the image of God. Throughout Christian history, heresy has resulted not necessarily from someone wanting to be evil or wanting to be heretical, but from someone taking a piece of the truth to an extreme and not doing justice to the other truths as well. In reality, uh, the devil is the mastermind behind part truths, but uh, he even gets more bold by promoting part truth lies. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 3, just for a way of review. We talked about this when I discussed living between two truths before, but go over, over with me to Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. You recall in the Garden of Eden that Satan beguiled Eve, and he did that by preaching three part truth lies. What were they? Look at Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. He said, the serpent said to the woman, you shall not, what? Surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So what were those three part truth lies? You shall not surely die. You shall be like God and you shall know good and, and evil. The devil was preaching the part truth of God's grace apart from his justice. God's not going to do what he really says. He's too gracious. He's too loving. And so he separated the truth of God's grace from the truth of God's justice, you see. And then after Eve succumbed and Adam as well, the devil just kind of left them in their sin and condemned them with the part truth of God's absolute justice 
apart from his grace. You know, sometimes the devil does that to each one of us, doesn't he? Oh, it's okay, just a little bit of that. It's okay, God will understand. It's okay, just this once. And when you just go ahead and succumb, what does the devil do? You know, God's not going to take you back. You've done it again. You've, you've failed. God's not going to express and, and issue grace to you. The devil is master in promoting part truth, part truths and part truth lies. The enemy of souls always seeks to pit one truth against another as if they were in conflict with each other. He revels in dividing what God has put together. One author wrote, he said that there are a great number, a great number of truths which seem contradictory and which all hold together in a wonderful system. I shared with you a couple of examples that I got from a couple of books that I read. Take a sphere, for example, a sphere. To split the diameter of a, a sphere makes two opposite halves out of a whole. The same thing happens when with the sphere of truth is divided. It creates two opposite, yet part truth hemispheres. Yet both truths are required to make a whole. So if one speaks a half truth, they convey a vital part truth, but each part truth is isolated from the complement of truth. It's complement of truth. The Bible often brings two principles together. For example, the sovereignty of God, the free will of man, revealing that they are not in opposition to each other, but they are in harmony, completing, forming a complete whole. Not half truth, but the whole truth. There was another example I shared with you, the ellipse. The ellipse of truth. The ellipse is a stretched out circle, kind of like a football. Uh, one, a circle has one center of focus, but an ellipse actually has two points of focus, uh, not pushed too far from each other. And this, the perfect, if they are pushed far enough from each other, the perfect ellipse breaks and it no longer exists. Also, if one emphasizes one focus over the other, the ellipse simply becomes two circles. It's as simple as that. So I shared with you how we get water from this ellipse. Water doesn't exist uh, with, unless the circle of hydrogen and the circle of oxygen are brought into the ellipse. If someone asked what would be more important, the answer would be equally important, especially if you were thirsty, especially if you wanted a drink of water. Much like asking whether we could live without the heart or without the brain. We can't live without both. Both are equally important to life and truth is the same way. Truth must be looked at in the form of an ellipse to oppose or to ignore, underemphasize one truth against the other would make two circles and you destroy the ellipse. Now I want to talk to you about biblical tensions, keeping two truths, twin truths in healthy tension to each other because this is where we're going to launch off uh, from here this morning. I'm going to ask uh, Demetrius. Are you there, Demetrius? Demetrius plays the guitar, and he plays the guitar very well. We could use the same uh, illustration with the harp here, but we're going to have Demetrius share with us here. The strings on a guitar are anchored at two points, are they not? And I don't even know what these things are called. They're anchored here, and they're anchored up, up here in this area. Now, uh, if one of those strings were not tightened adequately, if there was no tension on that string, Demetrius, would you mind playing a chord for us? Yay. Let's play that again. Can you hear that? Does that sound harmonious and nice? Okay, what happens when you add tension to the actual chord? Oh, we're getting a mic here. Thank you, Michael. All right. 
What chord is that? It's an A minor. So when the chord is not tightened between those two anchor points, you can't make beautiful music. But when the chords are anchored and firmly tense between those two anchor points, then Demetrius can play beautiful music, you see. Wonderful. Thank you, Demetrius. Excellent. Appreciate that. And twin truths act the same way. Twin truths must be held in tension to each other. That's the only way for them to be completely true. Both ideas must be held together in tension and thus in balance, in harmony. When you think about truths being held together in tension, think of these stringed instruments. Uh, properly attached at the two places, the instrument can be played and it creates beautiful music. If, string, if a string is left loose, you can't play. If the string is stretched too tightly, what happens? Pop. I wasn't going to have Demetrius ex give us an example on that one, but the string will what? Pop. It will break, and you can't play music at all, you see. So when we talk about biblical tensions, twin truths being in tension to each other, think about simply a musical instrument, a, a guitar, or a stringed instrument like the, the harp you see, where the strings are attached and anchored in two places, and yet must be tense in order for them to play beautiful music. The point is simply that God wants us to embrace twin truths, not to pit one against the other, so that not only is our theology right, but that our lives would be right, and that God can play beautiful music through and in our lives. Don't you want him to play beautiful music in your life? Truly, truly. So let's talk about the reality of tension, biblical tension in the Bible. In Ecclesiastes chapter 7, the unhappy preacher in, in chapter 7, verses 14 to 18, saw the complexity of life and he warned against going to extremes. And then in Ecclesiastes, I'm just going to give you several verses and you can write them down. In Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 8, he points out that everything in life has its time. The things that he lists are generally seen as opposites. For instance, a time to weep and a time to laugh. Right. Uh, God. God is concerned. The Bible's reveal a God that is concerned in revealing himself to human beings, but at the same time, he hides himself. Humans can't see him and yet and continue to live. With one hand, God prevents people from approaching him because he's too holy, yet on the other hand, he draws them to himself because of his love. We're just, we're just covering some basics here. Uh, we, we, we see these things, we've talked about these things before, but we just want to cover some basics. The New Testament also provides examples. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, for by grace you've been saved through what? Faith, it's a gift of God, right? It's not of works, lest anyone should boast. And yet you go to James chapter 2, verse 24, and James says, you see then that a man is justified by his works and not faith alone. Now we're not going to address those points, but you see two truths here and they must be held in healthy tension to each other. They're not opposed to each other. They're not opposed to each other. They're one complete truth. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, Jesus said, Judge not that ye be, be ye not judged. You go over to verse 16, and he says, By their fruits you shall know them. Right, in the words of John, uh, John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, they also appear to be contradictory. Jesus says, he who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. <laughs> now, Paul, he seemed to be a pretty, master, pretty much a master about writing 
uh, writing about biblical tensions. Look, look with me at Galatians. We're going to our scripture reading. Galatians chapter 2, and we'll read verse 20. Galatians chapter 2 and uh, verse 20. Paul said, he said, I am crucified. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2, verse 20, contains, these, contains those very intriguing words. Not only does Paul present twin truths in this passage that are rich theologically and must be held in healthy tension to each other, we have been crucified with Christ, yet Christ lives in me. These twin truths. But these twin truths also speak to an experience each of God's children are to have. Again, so that God can play beautiful music in and on our lives. This means that the twin truths must be held together in tension and thus in harmony in our lives. Now, in some ways, in some ways, tension is actually increased by belonging to Jesus Christ. It may seem strange to hear that biblical faith increases tension, but there is no question that it does. Now, keep in mind that this tension is not harmful. This tension is not destructive. Remember, think about the harp. Think about the, the guitar, stringed instrument, you see. These things are not harmful or destructive. Rather, as somebody put it, they are peaceful and creative. More on that in a moment. There are three twin truths. Three twin truths that are always at work in the believer's life, in yours and my life. And they're foundational to others that we'll discuss in the upcoming couple of weeks. Here they are. Number one, and uh, we're going to go through these quickly and then we'll have them up on the screen one at a time. They are gift and response. They are living in this world in anticipation of the next and then experiencing the death and resurrection of Jesus in our lives. So number one, and it's up there on the screen, gift and responsibility. New life in Jesus is both, and I think you would agree with me, both a gift and also a what? A responsibility. There's no doubt about that. The gospel both grants life and also demands life. Jesus granted limitless grace to his hearers when he invited the tax collectors and he invited the sinners to receive his free gift of salvation. But Jesus also demanded limitless obedience from those who accepted his free offer of salvation. Are you with me this morning? Okay. So we see this dynamic at work in many passages in the Bible where the writer goes from the fact of the gospel, what God has given to the believer, to the command of the gospel, the responsibility of you and I, the child of God. Go with me to Colossians. You're just a few pages over from Galatians. Go to Colossians. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 3. Notice here, here we have verse 3, chapter 3, verse 3, we have a command, you see, from God. This is the responsibility or the response from God's children when they receive His grace. Colossians 3, verse 3, Paul says, For you died and your life is hidden with you in Christ. So Paul states that we have died with Jesus when we gave our hearts, our lives to Him, when we accepted Him by faith. And then He commands us to put to death what belongs in our earthly natures. Look at verse 5. Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth. So He says that you have died in Christ, but you need to put to death your, uh, your members, you see. 
put to death those things that belong to your earthy, earthly nature. So this blend between fact and command, between gift and responsibility is common, and it's particularly common in some of the epistles. Go over to Peter, First Peter. We're going to just go around the scriptures here and take a look at this in its totality uh, here this morning. First Peter chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. First Peter chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. Notice what Peter says. Peter says, Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren. What's that? Is that a, is that a command or a fact? That's a, that's a fact, right? Now that you've done these things. Notice what he goes on to say here. Love one another fervently with a pure heart. Is that, a, is that gift or responsibility? Is that fact or command? It's a command, that's right. And then he says, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again. That is the supporting fact. So here you see in Peter's writings, you have the fact and you have the command. You have the gift and you have the responsibility, the Holy Spirit working in our hearts to unfeigned love of the brethren, and then the command to therefore love your your uh, brethren, you see. Let's go over to Romans now, Romans chapter 6. Let's take a look at this again. Romans chapter 6 and verse 12. Romans chapter 6 and verse 12. <clears throat> Here Paul gives a command. Notice what his command is. He says, Therefore, do not sin, do not let rather sin, reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lust. What is that, a fact or a command? A gift or a responsibility? It's a responsibility. It's a command, is it not? Surely. Now look, at, look at, over with me to verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. All right, is that a gift or is that a responsibility? Or is that a fact or a command? It is a fact. It is a gift. God promises that sin will not reign and rule in your lives. That's his gift of grace, you see. And yet there is the command to not let sin reign in our mortal bodies. More could be shared. The Christian life is lived out between gift and responsibility in the pursuit, listen carefully, of becoming what we, God already considers us in Christ. That's, that's what we're talking about. The Christian life is lived out between, the gift, between gift and responsibility in the pursuit of becoming what we already are in Jesus Christ. The twin truth of gift and responsibility are vitally important as they prevent spiritual disaster from taking place in our lives. The dynamic between Christ's gifts and our responsibility is the reason Christian tension is peaceful. The fact of the gospel allows us to trust in God's grace and the power of his promises, and therefore it leads us to deal creatively with the commands that he gives us, you see. This tension also prevents us from accepting a do-nothing religion. We shouldn't be misled into thinking that God's commands, such as consider yourself to be dead, you read that in Romans 6 verse 11, Paul says consider yourself to be dead, uh, we shouldn't be misled into thinking that that command is a pious example of wishful thinking or an attempt at self-delusion. Instead, this, this verse is a call to make the gospel real in each one of our lives. 
These, these truths invite us to take seriously what God has done in Christ and to view ourselves as God views us. Just another example of this before we move on to the next one. Jesus' parable of the unforgiving servant. And that's found in Matthew chapter 28, verses 21 to 35. That parable provides a sobering perspective on the nature of tension between gift and responsibility. Although the servant had been forgiven an enormous debt, he demanded his servant to pay a much smaller amount. You remember the story, right? He was forgiven a great debt, but he came to his servant who had a small debt and was, uh, was rude and demanded that he pay that. His master then judged him severely and said, should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? So we can't, in, in, in other words, we cannot claim the gift of God's forgiveness if we are not willing to own the responsibility of forgiving others. Gift and responsibility. That's one area of, of, of Christian tension that must be tension that must be held in healthy tension in our lives. These this the twin truths of gift and responsibility. Another one, the second point that I that we talked about or that I mentioned, living in this world as Christians in anticipation of the next. New life in Jesus means we live in this world and yet we prepare for the next. Isn't that right? Sure. When Jesus preached the kingdom of God, he referred to both the kingdom of God that had come and the kingdom of God that was to come. True justice can only be done to Jesus' teachings only if we treat fairly both the kingdom of the present and the kingdom of the future. It would be safe to say that the kingdom of God was present in that the promised end-time activity of God to defeat evil and establish righteousness was physically present in Jesus when he came and walked this earth. That's why Jesus could say after he emerged from being in the wilderness, after 40 days, and you can read this in Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is what? At hand. Repent, uh, therefore, and believe the gospel. In effect, Jesus was saying that God's end-time salvation was here. <laughs> the future kingdom had invaded the present, in the language of John 4.23, the hour is coming and now is. At the same time, the Bible teaches that Christ will ultimately establish his kingdom. And while we presently live in the kingdom of God's grace, the time is coming when Jesus will come and establish his kingdom of glory. At the Last Supper, you remember Jesus looked forward to the day that he would eat with his disciples, with us in his Father's kingdom. While new things have come to us in Jesus, we are also aware that the ultimate triumph of God is still yet to come. Turn with me to 2 Timothy. Let's take a look at a couple of biblical examples here. 2 Timothy chapter 6, rather chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 10. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 10. Paul writes these words, but has now being revealed, this is Jesus, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has done what? Abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So Paul writes here and speaks about death being abolished. But go over with me now to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 26. 
notice what he says here. So in first, second Timothy, rather, chapter 1, verse 10, Paul speaks of death being abolished. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 26, he says, the last enemy that will be destroyed is, is death. So Paul can speak of death both being abolished in Christ, but also death ultimately being abolished when Jesus comes back again, you see. Turn with me to Ephesians. We can be made alive in Jesus and seated with him in heaven. Notice what it says over here, Ephesians chapter 2. We're just looking at several examples of these biblical truths, these biblical tensions, twin truths. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5 and 6, that must be held in healthy tension to each other to create harmonious truth and a harmonious life. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. Notice what Paul says. He says, even when we were dead in trespasses, Christ made us alive together, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Are we in heaven with Jesus now? We are not there. We are not there, but Paul writes as though we are there. Our citizenship is in heaven. But you go over to Revelation chapter 3 and verse 21, notice, notice what John writes. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 21. We know what it says. Jesus is speaking. He says, to him that overcomes... I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So we can experience sitting with Jesus in heavenly places today, knowing ultimately we will physically sit with him on his throne when he establishes the kingdom of his glory. We live in the tension basically of the now, of the now and the not yet. You see that, right? You see that. It's not confusing. It's just we bring these two thoughts together and it creates a beautiful picture, the picture of truth. Think about, for example, as an illustration, think about a, a presidential transition team. Immediately after the election of a president in November, the victor appoints a transition team that initiates the transfer of power from one administration to the other. Although the victor is not present, uh, or president rather, until inauguration, the effect of that event is already at work in the transition. The outgoing president is virtually a lame duck and the center of focus shifts to who? To the incoming president, you see, and his new policies. In effect, the church is a transition team. Imagine being in a dark room with me for just a moment. You've been in there for a little while, the heavy curtains are down, you've been ushered into this room, you don't know what's on the outside. And all of a sudden, those curtains are drawn back and you're able to see the beautiful sunlight and the beautiful scenery, mountain scenery that surrounds the house. Now, you're still inside that particular room, but a new reality is being perceived that changes what life in that room actually looks like. That room was dark, but now the curtains are being drawn and what's coming in? Light and that gorgeous scenery you see that's coming into the room. Christians have experience that reality in Jesus so that their life cannot or ever will be the same as it was before, you see. Our salvation is both present and it is both future. Notice a couple more verses with me. Go to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. <clears throat> Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. Paul says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God, through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
So we have the, the present promise of being justified by grace as we express faith in Jesus. As we come to him with contrite, sorry hearts, he freely justifies us, freely forgives us, freely reinstates us. He freely grants us his righteousness. But turn with me to Galatians chapter 5 and verse 5. We're talking about salvation being both present and still future. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 5. <clears throat> Paul is writing, and he says, For we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of what? Righteousness by faith. So Paul says we can experience righteousness now, but we're still waiting for the hope of righteousness by faith. We are, we are, Christ has given us his righteousness, imputed his righteousness to us, and he imparts his righteousness as, that, as the Holy Spirit works in us to will and to do of his good pleasure. That's why we can be, both be righteous and God considers us righteous and continues to work in us his righteousness along the way, you see. Our salvation is both present and future. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, John said, Beloved, now we are the what? We are the children of God. That's right. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. So you can be a child of God now, but it yet has not yet been revealed what it shall be. This, the tension that exists between living in this world and anticipation of the next was misunderstood even and taken to extremes in the early church. In, uh, turn with me to Second Thessalonians. In the church of Thessalonica, there were some that were focused so much on the future that some people neglected the present. Second Thessalonians, over there where the T's are, Titus and Timothy and Thessalonians. You actually have Thessalonians and then Timothy and then Titus. Second Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 10. Some claimed that because the day of the Lord was near that they didn't need to work. Notice what it says, Second Thessalonians chapter 3 verses 10 and 11. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. So you had some folk in the church that took the idea of, of Christ coming and his future glory to an extreme. They thought his coming was very near, so they ceased operation. They ceased working. Now, some in the church at Corinth had a similar problem. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 12. Notice what it says here. Some in Corinth, the Corinthian church felt that they had already uh, possessed all that there was to have, insomuch that they didn't see any need for a future resurrection. Notice what Paul says here. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 12. He says, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead. Now, from Paul's sarcastic words in chapter 4, it appears that these folk felt that they had everything that they needed. Now, this overemphasis, of course, on what they thought they possessed in Christ led them to an ill-balanced thinking and an ill-balanced lifestyle. So we must be careful of extremes. The same still exists in the church today. Some have forgotten that there is a future triumph of God still coming. It will happen, and it is coming soon. They are content to merely focus on a social gospel, fixing social problems around us without proclaiming and acknowledging the return of Christ. Others, on the other hand, others attempt to escape this world. 
They only focus on the future and they are, they're on hold in terms of doing anything beneficial for their faith. Listen, friends, healthy Christianity is a Christianity that knows both what, is al- what we already have in Jesus and what still awaits completion. That's a healthy Christianity. And so these twin truths of living a good, solid Christian faith in this world in preparation for the next must be kept in healthy tension. The third area, the death and resurrection of Jesus. Christian faith is essentially an identification with the death and resurrection of Jesus. The result is the apparently paradox injunction to gain our life, gain life while dying or by dying to self. Identification with the death and resurrection of Christ is virtually the same as saying that Jesus is my Lord. We are called to deny self. Jesus said, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Giving up life in order to find it is the dynamic of faith. There are many who are comfortable in identifying with the resurrection of Jesus only so that they can experience joy and God's blessings, but they want nothing to do with identifying with the death, with death to self in self-sacrificing love. Yet Christianity requires both. Turn with me to Romans chapter 6 verse 4. Romans chapter 6 verse 4. This is a main theme in Paul's writings when he talks about discipleship. Romans chapter 6 and verse 4. Paul says, Therefore we are buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. Paul brings the two thoughts together, death and life. There are many other verses that we could look at. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 10. Galatians 2, 19 and 20. We read Galatians 2, 20 earlier. Colossians 2, verses 12 and onwards up to chapter 3. We should never view, we shouldn't view that Christ's death and resurrection just takes and deals with the problem of sin, although it does and it's very powerful and it must. Christ's death and resurrection should also, however, be mirrored in our lives daily. The refusal, for example, to vent justifiable anger in order to show God's love is one way of mirroring Christ's death and resurrection in your life. If because of God's work in my life, I give up my rights in order to accomplish God's purpose, then I'm identifying with the death and resurrection of Jesus. An attitude, an act in which we sacrifice our own will and to make God's will supreme is a means of dying to self and rising to walk in newness of life with Jesus. Do you see that? Sure. Death and resurrection are the pattern by which we live by. Christians are to know him, according to Philippians 3.10, we are to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings and be conformed to his death. We are to know the resurrection of Jesus, but yes, we are also to be conformed to his, the likeness of his death. Jesus' action of giving himself to be lived uh, by his followers and the same spirit that raised him is the spirit in which we live, you see. Now, it may be incongruous to identify with death and resurrection at the same time, but according to the Bible, we cannot identify with the resurrection without first 
identifying with the death of Jesus. The dynamic at work is a continual saying no, saying no to the possibility of a merely human existence. In other words, one where we live for and please ourselves only. One doesn't one that doesn't take into account God. And at the same time saying yes to the way of the cross and the way of the resurrection. That's what that's what it means to say when we say Jesus is my or our Lord. Jesus is my and our Lord. You may know of some, for example, who may have left some lucrative career to serve God. Maybe someone here has. But we shouldn't just confine our thinking about dying and rising to Christ to these types of experiences. All of us are to live Christ dying and rising in our lives. We die and rise with Christ when in keeping with God's intentions, we choose, for example, to enhance a spouse or family member or a colleague rather than ourselves. Anytime we give up what we want or want to be to become what Christ wants us to be, we experience a dying and arising with Christ, you see. These three tensions, these are the three tensions that we've talked about here today. The call to become what we are in Christ already, to live in this world in anticipation of the next, and finding life through dying to self. These are always at work in the Christian life, in yours and in my life. That is why our faith is marked by a peaceful and a creative tension. Living twin truths is not merely a fact of the Christian life. It is the joy of living a life for Christ. By dealing adequately with twin truths in our lives, we become, in essence, the whole person that God desires us to be. But why do so many people seek to avoid this tension? Why are we so prone to choose one side or the other? As life is not always simple, so the Christian walk isn't always simple. In fact, in order to keep life simple, we tend to suppress those things that hint at complexity. We accept partial truths. We accept stereotypes. We accept generalizations if, as if they don't square with reality or the facts. For example, we say things like, poor people are lazy, are always lazy, if only they would work. Or, I don't have to worry about the hungry or the homeless because they don't live near me. Someone else can deal with them. We simplify things way too much. Even the Bible is kept simple. We avoid reading our favorite Bible. We, we, rather, we read our favorite Bible passages and conveniently ignore others that call our lifestyle and our theology into question. Surely, Jesus didn't, not in, didn't intend that we should really share our possessions with others, we say. Any, our attempts, any attempt to make life simple and our faith simple derives from the need to find some handle by which to control this complexity that surrounds us. The fact remains, though, we cannot escape the complexity of life. We need both to be alone and to be with people. We need independence, and yet we need also approval and a sense of belonging. We enjoy both doing nothing at times and also the satisfaction of doing hard work. The failure to deal with tensions only creates mammoth problems in our lives. If it is true that life is complex, then we ought to stop acting as if it were not. Enjoying the simple life is one thing, but being simplistic 
by ignoring and rationalizing away the complexity of life won't work at all. Now there is an immediate objection that comes to mind that some of, some of the finest Christians we know of were or are people with a simple faith who live, it appears, uncomplicated lives. That's what we want. If simple faith means undivided loyalty to Jesus, then yes, I would agree with that notion. But I cannot agree with such a commitment that removes problems from, uh, problems from humans, uh, from, from what we all face, you see. If a person wanted to help those living in disease, for example, riddled uh, with disease here on planet Earth, here's the, here's the quandary. Should they use all of their time helping the sick and the dying, or should they spend their time raising money and awareness to create greater help? What should they do? Life is not always that simple. Should they use their limited resources only for patients who are sure to recover and ignore the dying? What should you do? When we think that life is simple, then we only, only show that we are unaware of the problems. The promising picture as well that is presented by some evangelists and television broadcasters that a strong faith guarantees a problem-free life is a perversion of the gospel. Their view suggests that Christians always recover from illness and always enjoy financial blessing. In other words, the Christian life is a walk in the park, you see. Now, people like to hear these messages, but misunderstanding and heartache usually result. The Jesus who chose the way of the cross would feel ill at ease if someone were to summarize his message as something good is going to happen to you if you accept Jesus and if you sow into my ministry some money. Something good is about to happen. That would go down as well as a slab of tofu in a barbecue contest with Jesus. It wouldn't work. The gospel does not guarantee trouble-free life, nor does it promise to make us rich. Think about the Bible injunction to love yourself, or others rather, as yourself. It seems simple enough, doesn't it? But often it's not so simple to know what the loving thing to do really is. What should a, for example, teacher do with a student who's been caught cheating? What should a, student, a teacher tell a student who does not have the potential for his or her chosen career. What do you do? What's the loving thing to do? Now, I don't mean to make the Christian life appear difficult, but we need to know that we must deal honestly with all aspects of life. Life is complicated, and there is no way of getting around that. Following Christ is no simple matter. Someone wrote that Christian faith is characterized by a peaceful and creative tension. Now, that may not make much sense, but they actu accurately describe the Christian faith. Tension in the Christian life is not a tightrope that we walk, fear of falling off on either side. There would be no peace in that. A more appropriate image is of a stringed instrument, like we talked about earlier. Properly attached at the two right places, the instrument can be played. If a string is loose, it can't be, music can't be produced. If the string is stretched too tightly, the string will do what? Snap and break. Talking about living between two truths that must be kept in tension to each other doesn't involve anxiety, and it doesn't involve tenseness. Neither does it refer to uncertainty. It doesn't refer to relativity or straddling the fence. It doesn't involve any of those. To speak of complexity doesn't imply that the gospel is confusing either. The gospel is clear and often reduced to simple, basic ideas, such as Abba, 
Jesus' unique address to his father, Abba, Father, or the word covenant, or the word love, or the death and resurrection of Jesus. But if each of these expressions represent a simple statement of the gospel, none of them is simplistic. None of them is simplistic. On the contrary, they are all doorways, as one person wrote, into a new reality that encompasses all of life, the whole truth. As we'll find in some various lessons, issues from the Bible, the fact of living between two truths that would be kept in healthy tension to each other is essentially a discussion about the grace of God. That's why tension can be peaceful. It's based on the grace of God that's been revealed in the sa our Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Grace is never just pure gift. It is also a call to responsibility. That's why tension is creative. If grace tells us that you are a child of God, you've met the conditions, you're a child of God, it also instructs us to what? Now live like one, right? Now live like one. Many have way too long viewed faith as something that we got at some point. Our relationship with God is a process of living for and with Him. Therefore, the tension we experience becomes the stage on which our faith is given creative expression. The call to live a life in Christ is a call to a real life. Amen? It's a call to a real life. Nor is life with Christ simplist, a simplistic experience. Those who think that they can master life in Christ are in for a surprise. One person wrote, and I'm sharing this now in closing, Jesus is an inspiring and disturbing presence. Bear with me. He inspires us and comforts us, but he also humbles us and he disturbs us. Yes, God receives us when we first came to him, but we are, as we allow the Holy Spirit to have access to our hearts and to our minds, God brings change and sometimes that change can be painful. As that change is effected, though, we know once again the grace of God. But the process isn't over. It happens again. Again and again, God comforts and disturbs. Comforts and disturbs. Life in Jesus Christ isn't always easy, for we are called to grow continually by following the way of the cross. Someone said, and this is my prayer for each one of us as I close, may God keep us from the fanaticism of the extremes and the mediocrity of the middle road. May our life be a life in faith in Jesus Christ. May we let him work in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. May we know that we are his children. We've got to know that here today, friends. We've got to know that we are Christ's children. Have we come to him with true hearts, sincere hearts, repentant hearts? Have we opened our lives and our minds to him to say, Christ, I need you and I need you as savior of my life. If we've done that, then we can know that we are a child of God, forgiven. But do you also know that he's expecting you to now to act like a child of God? Do you know your need of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit that comes into your life and works that change? God declares that we are his children, but that the power of his word makes us his children. Do you know that today? We must know these things today. To live a life in Christ is not boring. To live a life in Christ is exciting. 
challenging, yes, but it is the real life. And may that life in Christ we receive and we accept wholeheartedly today. We live between two truths, friend, but my, my prayer is that nothing will come between our Lord and uh, between us and our Savior. And that's our closing hymn here today, number 322. Nothing between. Yes, we live our lives between two truths, but don't let anything bec become, come between you and Jesus Christ. Number 322, nothing between. Number 322, nothing between.